We want to come back to our study in the book of Ezekiel. So if you'd turn in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 11. We are in part two of this message that uh, we began last week. Uh, I had titled our message, The Most Devastating Goodbye Ever. And I believe this absolutely is the most devastating of goodbyes. We are in uh, the section that carries chapter 8 to 11 of the book of Ezekiel. And we could broadly term that section the pollution of the temple and the desecration that has occurred as a result of the faithlessness of the nation of Israel. We have seen Ezekiel's call in the first three chapters of the book and then the, the prophecies of Jerusalem's fall in chapters 3 to 7, uh, 4 to 7 rather. And, and as we consider all of this, we now come to this prophesied destruction that is connected with Ezekiel's vision. It's interesting that we note that there are two elements of vision that go on in Ezekiel. There are those times where he is physically in the presence of the Lord and physically participating in these visions. That's what we saw in chapters 1 through 3. And then there is also a component where there's a physical transport during those visions, and we saw that also. In fact, if we looked at Ezekiel chapter 3 and verse 12, we see an example of that in Ezekiel 3.12 where it says, Then the Spirit lifted me up, and I heard a great rumbling sound behind me. Blessed be the glory of the Lord in his place. So he is physically in the presence of the Lord, and then he is physically brought to his feet in the presence of this vision. Incredible for us to recognize this. And then there is also these ecstatic visions, these times where he is not moved bodily, but where he is taken in a vision to see what God would show to him. And that's what we're seeing here. It's exactly what we saw back in chapter 8 and verses 1 to 3 where this began. And it says in chapter 8 and verse 1, It came about in the sixth year on the fifth day of the sixth month, one year and, and, and two months following the beginning of his ministry, as I was sitting in my house with the elders of Judah, sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell on me there. And then I looked, and behold, a likeness as the appearance of a man. From his loins and downward there was the appearance of fire, and from his loins and upward the appearance of brightness, like the appearance of glowing metal. And he stretched out the form of a hand and caught me by the lock of my head, and the Spirit lifted me up between the earth and heaven and brought me in the visions of God to Jerusalem, to the entrance of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the idol of jealousy, which provokes to jealousy, was located. So here we're confirmed that this is a vision which he saw. He was not physically lifted up by his hair, but rather in a vision he saw this as he sits in his own house before the elders of Israel. The glory of the Lord, the, the main component that we look at here, and in verse 4 of chapter 8, immediately following, it says, And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was there, like the appearance which I saw in the plain. So the glory of the God of Israel is a primary topic and theme in our book. We saw it in chapter 1 and continued through that first section, and now we see it come again. And here, what becomes so important is the, one of the things that becomes important is the location. 
we notice that the glory of the Lord is at the north gate of the inner court. Now that's an interesting location. If you were to look at most of your Bible dictionaries, you are not going to find uh, a north gate located in the wall of the inner court, the court of the priests. In fact, or the court of the Levites. What you will find is that the only thing appearing near that would be the north gate of the temple wall, which is referred to as the sheep's gate moves out towards the pool of Siloam. I do not believe that's what's being spoken about here. I think there's another gate which we do not understand uh, because all of the details of the temple are not revealed to us. And so I think that's what's being described here. But in any case, the key is that he is on the north side of the Temple Mount. Very important for us to recognize. And then throughout chapter 8, We see him go on and describe to us as he takes Ezekiel through this vision of the temple and he sees all of the abominations that are going on and they're going on by every element of the society. They are going on by the elders, they are going on by the priests, they are going on by the high priest, every component that would be involved in the temple worship and those who should not be are there and and the abominations are inconceivable. And then we see the first movement of the glory of the Lord in chapter 9 and verse 3. The glory of the God of Israel went up from the cherub on which it had been to the threshold of the temple. So we have the whole structure of what we have called often the chariot of God, which is the, the crystal expanse as blue in appearance, Below it, the four cherubim with the four faces that face every direction. The four wheels within wheels that move without turning, all full of eyes around and about. And the throne of God and the glory of God atop it. And this, the entire visage of the glory of God that is at the north gate. And now the first movement of that is that the glory of God moves away from the cherub and away from the expanse and moves over the threshold of the temple in chapter 9 and verse 3. The chapter 9 continues and it summarizes the slaughter that has gone on. And we saw the six destroying angels come in and the man in linen along with them. Chapter 10, then we move to the inhabitants and this becomes really critical for us that now the slaughter has occurred of those six destroying angels and now in chapter 10 the vision is continuing but the people that are participating in the vision are the people that are remaining after the slaughter has occurred the remnant that is described after ezekiel cried out to the lord in verse 8 of chapter 9 So this is who is yet remaining and and who we're speaking about. And this will become quite important. So keep keep a, a pointer there. Put a pin in it, as we might say. So the inhabitants here are the post slaughter folks. And then the second movement of the chariot to the threshold happens in verse 1 of chapter 10. This is now the the second movement. Then I looked and behold in the expanse was over the heads of the cherubim something like sapphire stone in appearance resembling a throne appeared above them. And he spoke to the man clothed in linen and said, Enter between the whirling wheels under the cherubim and fill your hands with coals of fire 
from between the cherubim and scattered them over the city, and he entered in my sight. Now the cherubim were standing on the right side of the temple when the man entered, and the cloud filled the inner court. So we have a movement that's occurred there in verse 1 of chapter 10, where the chariot has moved over the threshold. We saw back in chapter 9 that the glory of God moved over the threshold. Now the entire edifice of the chariot with the cherubim and the wheels have moved as well. And then we see the third movement in verse 3 where the cherubim are now standing on the right side of the temple. You'll recall from last week or you can go back and listen to that message where the right side was the south side of the temple. This was a very unique location. This would have been in the area known as Solomon's Portico, the largest section of the Temple Mount. The only thing that's really specific about the south is it faces the city of David. But therein also it faced the king's house. And I believe that that is the key component of why we are told that it is there on the south side of the temple. And it tells us there that the, the glory of the Lord went up from the cherub to the threshold of the temple and the temple was filled with the cloud and the court was filled with the brightness of the glory of the Lord. So now we have the glory of God that is filling the, uh, the, the inner court as well as the temple itself. Not just the Holy of Holies where it normally dwelt, but the holy place and the Holy of Holies. So the glory of God has, has moved from its historic location above the mercy seat between the cherubim, over the Ark of the Covenant, and has now separated itself to this first stage over the threshold. The temple and the court, the sound that's been discussed there, we see, and then we see the, uh, the, the fourth movement there to the Lord moving in verse 4, again over the threshold. So he has moved back to the threshold, back out to the south side, and now back again to the threshold. The fifth movement that we see is going to be to the east gate. But in the rest of chapter 10, which was our first point from our message, began in verse 1 last week. And as we talked about the devastating goodbye, our first point was the initiated departure. That was the movement of the Spirit of God to this location as it began to depart. And then as verses 6 to 17 describe the action of the man in linen, we know that man to be the pre-incarnate Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. We've, we've understood that because of what we just read in verses 1 to 3, that he is the one that goes into the temple, that he is the one who goes underneath the altar and grabs the coals from underneath the altar of God in his hands, and then is to bring them out and put them upon the city. Now we have the fifth movement in verse 18 of chapter 10. Look at verse 18 and 19 with me. Then the glory of the Lord departed from the threshold of the temple and stood over the cherubim. And when the cherubim departed, they lift their wings and rose up from the earth in my sight with the wheels beside them, and they stood still in the entrance of the east gate of the Lord's house. And the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. And again, I would reflect you back to last week's message where we spoke about this being the east gate or the golden gate. Not the beautiful gate that is in the exterior wall of the temple. And we spoke about the alignment that uh, several scholars exist 
believe exists between Gethsemane, the Golden Gate, the center of the Holy of Holies, and um, Golgotha, where the Lord was crucified. And that those particular locations would allow geographically, per the current construction, with the, the temple in the configuration that we've had revealed to us, uh, with the uh, Golden Dome in its current place as well, which, again, that was, we kind of went into some depth there, and we won't chase that route today, but you're welcome to go uh, listen to that message, or we can talk more afterwards. And now, in chapter 11, we get to our third point, which is the interminable departure. The interminable departure, and that there can no longer be a return. Thus it is interminable. And really, this is broken into five sections, and we'll move through them quite quickly. Our first of five subpoints is a false expectation in chapter 11, verses 1 to 4. A false expectation. Look at these first verses with me. Moreover, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me to the east gate of the Lord's house, which faced eastward. And behold, there were 25 men at the entrance of the gate, and among them I saw Jezaniah, the son of Azur, and Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, leaders of the people. And he said to me, Son of man, these are the men who devise iniquity and give evil advice in the city, who say the time is not near to build houses. The city is the pot, and we are the flesh. Therefore prophesy against them. Son of man, prophesy. So in this introductory section, in this false expectation, what we see first are these 25 men and Yazaniah. Now, if we went back and we looked, we would recognize that these are familiar names to us. And we have seen 25 men and also Yazaniah back in chapter 8. Chapter 8 and verse 11 had Yazaniah called out. And chapter 8 and verse 16 mentions the 25 men. Now this is where we need to keep our thinking caps on to understand what's going on from an interpretive point of view. This uh, context becomes really important and careful reading also. Now we mentioned that all of those that are being seen in this vision are post-slaughter. So that means, by definition, that the 25 are a different 25 because they are the ones who were doing abominable acts and who did not receive the mark of salvation, the mark of sustenance from the man in linen, the saving angel, the, the pre-incarnate Christ. Furthermore, we note that Yazaniah back in chapter 8 and verse 16 or verse 11 is Yazaniah the son of Shaphan here in our text it is Yazaniah the son of Azur now we don't find a bunch of other stuff about them biblically or extra biblically all we know that they is that they are different men but that is a very significant point for us because it's showing that there are different groups and so the first thing that we see is some of our potential false expectations is that these are the same men when indeed they are different. Now, the name uh, Pelatiah means Yahweh has rescued. Yahweh has rescued. 
and it was a very popular name around the end of Judah's history because they were expecting God's rescue from all of the destruction that was coming upon them. The other name that we have here, Benaiah, means Yahweh has built. This has always been a very popular name in Israel. So although these men are not specifically delineated, many scholars believe, and I would tend to agree with them, that what's most significant about these names is what they mean. Yahweh has rescued, and Yahweh has built, and we'll see why they become significant as we move along. But what we can say for now, or all that we can say, I should say, is what the text says. And it gives us two components of what these men were in verse 2. They devised iniquity and they gave evil advice to the city. Devise iniquity and give evil advice. Now, the, the Hebrew phrase devise iniquity could be translated as think about harm or think about injustice. And give evil advice is to counsel plans of evil or wickedness and then we see two examples following of this iniquity and evil the first is that they say the time is not near to build now we're not quite sure what that means at a first blush what are they talking about well what they're saying because there would be no need to build houses in jerusalem remember that was the point of the promised land god was bringing them into a land that was the land overflowing with milk and honey. A land where the houses were already built for them to live in. So what the reference is here is to the, those that have been taken away, the exiles who are in Babylon. And they're saying there's no reason for us to run from Jerusalem and go build houses in Babylon. We're secure here. We're fine here. There's no big deal. The second statement we see them making is that this city is the pot and we are the flesh. This has got commentators going sideways on every potential front. Because they think of this term of flesh in a pot like we would. We would think of meat that was to be eat. We would think of destruction and death. And of course that is the theme of Ezekiel. And so they would say, well, well how can these men who are giving evil advice be counseling the very thing that Ezekiel has been saying? Well, it's because when we look deeper into an understanding of the Hebrew language, we find out that there's another meaning for that. Keep in mind that they did not have refrigerators in which to put their meat. They did not have the storage devices that we had. And what often happened is that the very pots that were cooked in were also used to hold the meat and to seal it from insects and other things getting to it. So they would store it there for a short period. And I, I, that's what, uh, what Charles Feinberg comes up with and indicates that that is the, the clear indication of what this phrase is talking about. So what they're saying is that Jerusalem is our pot. We are in this pot and we are protected. There's no need for us to go build houses. You know, all these prophets talking about the doom coming, we're all good. There are no issues for us to be concerned with. And what does the Lord tell Ezekiel? prophesy against them son of man prophesy the lord is pretty fired up about this whole deal as well we can understand these are indeed the false expectations and they give way to our second point the future events the future events in verses 5 to 12 
verse 5 shows us that God knows our thoughts. And it says there, Then the Spirit of the Lord fell upon me, and he said to me, Say, Thus says the Lord. So you think, house of Israel? For I know your thoughts. Such a powerful text for us to consider. Listen to Jeremiah chapter 17 and verse 10. I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, according to the results of his deeds. God knows our minds. The beautiful text from Psalm 139 uh, that just is one of my favorites and so glorious reveal, gloriously reveals this in Psalm 139 and verse 2a. You understand my thoughts from afar. Verse 4 of Psalm 139. Even before there is a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You know, beloved, this can be us. Sometimes we can think, you know, the Lord doesn't know. And I don't know that we would do that in a bold and an overt way as to say, oh, God doesn't see what I'm doing, for we know better. But rather, we live in that way. And we do things totally forgetting that God is right here with us. That the very hands with which we commit iniquity, the Lord is there upon our fingers, sitting in our mind, thinking about the things that we think, looking through our eyes at the things that come before us. We must recognize just as surely as he said to them, so you think, for I know your thoughts. And God knows all that we think. Never think God doesn't know. Well, God gives the real story in verse 6. You have multiplied your slain in this city, filling its streets with them. They've multiplied the slain because of their iniquity and their evil counsel. Rather than telling them after this slaughter has occurred, keep in mind we're post-slaughter, there are dead bodies everywhere, rather than waking up and saying, wow, maybe we're in trouble, they continue to bring this evil counsel. They continue to devise thoughts of iniquity and sin. And they have thus multiplied their slain. And then verse 7 gives the true definition of the pot from the Lord's perspective. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, your slain whom you have laid in the midst of the city are the flesh, and this city is the pot, but I will bring you out of it. So the, the, the slain and the reality of commentators' thoughts regarding what the pot meant are now fulfilled. This is what God will do. He will use it in a destructive way manner and in verse 8 it carries on you have feared a sword so i will bring a sword upon you the lord declares and he continues on in verse 9 and i will bring you out of the midst of the city and deliver you into the hands of strangers and execute judgment against you you will fall by the sword i will judge you to the border of israel so you shall know that i am the lord The city will not be a pot for you, nor will you be flesh in the midst of it, but I will judge you to the border of Israel. Thus you will know that I am the Lord, for you have not walked in my statutes, nor have you executed my ordinances, but you have acted according to the ordinances of the nations around you. You have thought that the city is a protection from you. You have multiplied your slain. You have piled the bodies one upon another as if they meant nothing to you. 
and you have elevated yourself to places of prominence over the bodies of these dead. Incredible to consider the callousness that has gone on in these people's minds in these future events. Well, the future events give way to the fatal experience in verse 13. In verse 13, we see this fatal experience come to reality where it says, Now it came about as I prophesied that Pelatiah, son of Benaiah, died. Then I fell on my face and cried out with a loud voice and said, Alas, Lord God, will you bring the remnant of Israel to a complete end? Now this is, uh, this is a stunning statement. If it sounds similar, it is almost the identical statement to verse 8 of chapter 9. As God has shown Ezekiel, and we've come through the six destroying angels and the man in linen, Ezekiel falls on his face and makes the same proclamation, essentially. But it is not exactly the same. And our commentators don't bring this about in the same fashion that we see it in the original Hebrew text. It is not a question in the original Hebrew. Here it is repeated exactly as it is in verse 8 of chapter 9. But the Hebrew is a statement. It is not a question. And it would read, according to the original and per our translation, Alas, Lord God, you are bringing the remnant of Israel to an end. He's not asking if he's doing it. He's seeing it. And he's falling on his face to say, it's happening. Oh Lord God, is, you are doing this now. I have seen you with the destruction of those that were the wicked. But now these that are left are the ones who had received the mark initially. These were the ones who the man in linen had taken the case through the city and put a mark upon their forehead such that the destroying angels would not take them out because of their righteousness. And now they're being taken out. And Ezekiel is overwhelmed. Alas, Lord God, you are making this destruction before me. You are bringing the remnant of Israel to an end. It's a statement of shock because of the remnant. When we see the the previous condition, there was a following promise from the remnant in chapter 9. And it's a reminder for us, beloved, of what happens in our world. You know, the, the famous uh, analogy that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is brought to fruition here. These men have gained power and they have fallen short. They are not mourning and repenting, but they are stacking the dead in order to elevate themselves. As we sit and we talk about leadership in our men's study, this is the ultimate failure in leadership. That we are going to rise at any cost and in any way by which we may get to the surface. Unfortunately, this is a statement of much of corporate America. We will get to the top clawing and scratching any way that we can. But it is not biblical leadership. The false expectations and the future events, the fatal experience, and now the fantastic elaboration in verse 14. The fantastic elaboration look at verse 14 with me then the word of the lord came to me saying 
son of man, your brothers, your relatives, your fellow exiles in the whole house of Israel, all of them are those to whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, go far from the Lord. This land has been given us as a possession. Therefore say, Thus says the Lord God, though I had removed them far away among the nations, and though I had scattered them among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them a little while in the countries where they had gone. Therefore say, thus says the Lord God, I will gather you from the peoples and assemble you out of the countries among which you have been scattered, and I will give you the land of Israel." When they come there, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. And I will give them one heart and put a new spirit within them. And I will take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them a heart of flesh that they may walk in my statutes and keep my ordinances and do them. Then they will be my people and I shall be their God. But as for those whose hearts go after their detestable things and abominations, I will bring their conduct down on their head, declares the Lord God. This text shows us the the clear, fantastic prophecy of the return of the nation of Israel. But it begins by clarifying for us exactly what's happening in the city in verse 15. He says, son of man, your brothers, literally again in the Hebrew, it says, your brothers, your brothers. It's repeated for emphasis. And then it says, your relatives, literally these are your redeemers, those who are to be the ones who bring you back. He is speaking about the ones that are still in Jerusalem, the ones who are to show themselves as righteous, to recognize the slaughter, and to turn in righteousness. He says, these and the whole house of Israel All of them whom the inhabitants of Jerusalem have said, go far from the Lord. This land has been given us as a possession. What he's saying here is all of your brothers, all of those who should redeem you, the whole nation of Israel have said to all of you who are out in exile, go away from us. You no longer have a part in us. Adios. Sayonara, Alviderzain. I mean to say goodnight. He's saying you no longer are here. You no longer have an inheritance. Farewell, have a nice life because we're now in the city and it's ours. What used to be yours is ours. We're taking over, baby. I don't care what you used to own. I don't care what used to be your family. It's mine. I'm here now. I'm the new king on the block. And the Lord's proclaiming, he understands what they're saying. Therefore, in light of this, the Lord says, though I have removed them far away, though you are in exile from the nations, and though I had scattered you from among the countries, yet I was a sanctuary for them for a little while. Kind of an, an, another kind of unfortunate translation. He really says, I was a, this was a little sanctuary. I was a little sanctuary to you there in Babylon. I protected you. I told you to go, to build houses, to marry, for you will be here. I was a little sanctuary to you. I was with you in this time, in the countries where they had gone. Verse 17, the Lord says, I will gather you from the peoples. I will bring you back. This is the restoration. And I will give you the land of Israel. Here's the confirmation for us that this is yet future. 
They do not yet, nor have they ever fully possessed the land of Israel. But he will give it to them. And when they come, they will remove all its detestable things and all its abominations from it. This is another reason why we know this has not happened yet. The Al-Aqsa Mosque and the Golden Dome could not yet sit on the Temple Mount because these are abominations to the Lord God. And they have not yet been removed. Nor do I believe that they will be removed until after the tribulation time has come and the Lord returns and builds his millennial temple on that spot, which we'll get to in chapters 40 to 48. So he is telling them here that it will happen and we are seeing that this is an as yet future event will, ha will happen, but nonetheless a fantastic elaboration. And then we get to probably the most beautiful uh, picturesque language in in ezekiel it is repeated again in ezekiel 36 that which we see in verses 19 to 20 we know it as the new covenant jeremiah 31 31 i will give you a new heart i will take out your heart of stone and i will give you a heart of flesh i will put my spirit within you i will give you my statutes i will give them my statutes and they will keep them Beloved, this ought not be something that we just rejoice to consider that the nation of Israel will be restored and that they will be back in the land and that they will have possession and that they will be obedient to the commandments. But it applies to you and I. We are not those who will take the same place. This is specifically for national Israel. But won't it be fantastic when we keep the commandments of the Lord perfectly? when we're no longer stained by sin and struggling by the battle that goes on each and every day in our lives, when he will draw us together, well, this is a foretaste of what we're going to see when we get to Ezekiel 34, 35, and particularly Ezekiel 36. Stunning revelations of the full component of the new covenant. And we are those who receive the first blessing of that new covenant, having been grafted in to the place where they were, and yet they will return one day to that place of prominence, as we see also in those texts in Romans 9 to 11. A new covenant preview, and then it concludes with that warning, yet those whose hearts go after detestable things and abominations, I will bring their conduct down on their heads, declares the Lord God. And this takes us from a fantastic elaboration to our final extrication in verses 22 to 25. The final extrication and a conclusion of our third point, the interminable departure. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel hovered over them. They had been at the east gate, east gate at the entrance to the temple mount, to the brazen altar to the laver to the temple itself with all of its courts and the glory of God moves above the gate and pauses as if to look over that I'm reminded of our Lord when he sat upon Gethsemane and wept as he looked upon the city O Jerusalem, Jerusalem you who has slain the prophets how I desired to gather you under my wing the hen gathers her chicks but you are not willing and the glory of the God hovered over them 
And the glory of the Lord, in verse 23, went up from the midst of the city and stood over the mountain, which is east of the city. And the Spirit lifted me up and brought me in a vision by the Spirit of God to the exiles in Chaldea. So the vision that I had seen left me. And then I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. The glory of the Lord departs and goes up over the Mount of Olives and never returned to the Temple Mount. The Second Period Temple, which was rebuilt by Ezra and Nehemiah and Zerubbabel, the glory of the Lord never returns to that temple. Nor through any of the time during the Lord's time on earth, short of his physical presence on that Temple Mount. And it shall not return again until the abominations have been cleared. So there is yet a temple that is coming that will have to stand according to our prophetic text and, uh, uh, so that the abomination of desolation can occur, as Second Thessalonians tells us, and so that that temple can be destroyed. And eventually there will be the fourth millennial temple that the Lord will dwell in and he will purify and he will return and put his name there as he sits in the throne of David. The sadness of the departure, this is the most devastating goodbye ever for the nation of Israel. They were removed and their God would no longer have anything to do with them. We're going to see terms in the chapters ahead that describe God's divorce of Israel and we're going to understand components of divorce that perhaps you've never thought of and I'm sure will push you to consider what divorce means to us today in light of how God shows it. We're going to see the, the horror of harlotry brought forth as a picture, and, and it is going to be some, some gruesome pictures for us to recognize all that has gone on in this most devastating goodbye ever. But God will return. He continues to promise that he will return. This text destroys amillennial theology and any conception that God is not going to return to national prominence the land of Israel. Unless you do some type of hermeneutical backflips in order to interpret this text to show that it, it, it is not a, a literal fulfillment and allegorize it to some absurd conclusion, there is no other logical conclusion that can be reached. And what a blessing for us to recognize God's perfect plan. What a blessing to recognize that, that he is carrying everything forward from this very page as if it happened yesterday. As we see him orchestrate through the lives of ourselves and of our beloved congregation, as we see him work through physical and financial and spiritual challenges in our lives, and we know as surely as, as it is night that he is God and that he is with us, we can be just as sure that this will come to exact fulfillment just as we've seen in our lives as we prayed. And the blessings are beyond measure for us to recognize, but the consequences in like fashion exist. And we have the, the incredible privilege of being able to grow and see God's hand and to look forward and to plead for him, to him for the return of his son where there will be the beginning of that restoration. And yet we know until that time, we are exhorted all the more to go out and to share Christ, 
to proclaim to this world around us that they need to recognize that the wrath of God is coming and it's like nothing that they've seen. And should they depart from this earth without knowing Christ as their Savior, the wrath they will endure shall be eternal. And the most blessed thing they will ever have known is what exists on this earth. And when you consider that that might be the greatest thing that you've ever known, that's a pretty horrifying thought. But for those of us that know Christ, this is the closest to hell we'll ever get. And I want to take everybody that I can along with me. And I hope and pray that you do too, and I know that that's the case.